we're going to be doing this spring. We're in a new series, this series, from the book of Isaiah in the Old Testament by a prophet named Isaiah. And what we're going to be looking about and what we're going to start in tonight is talking about gods that cannot save and the one God who will. These gods who can't save us or help us aren't actually gods at all. Gods in quotation mark. They're things that we look to and we have promoted to God's status, divine status. They're electrifying to us. But they're nothing. There's a delusion involved. They can't help us. They can't save us. But we, we are asking them to save us, to rescue us, to secure us. Now, in our context in the West right now, these objects, these idols, these other gods aren't often physical objects that we put in a little shrine. It's way worse than that in our context. They're loves and addictions that we've enshrined in our hearts. And I think that's way more hard to deal with than a little bobblehead in a shrine that you think can bless you or curse others. These loves are our loves for approval and control and comfort and power and all the little other iterations that come out of that that we will spend the next few weeks trying to get our heads and our hearts around. These are the idols that we mindlessly, subconsciously, dutifully, obediently, faithfully follow and bend our knees to. But the problem is they're not real, they have no power, and they can't love you back. They they can't make good on the promises that they make to us and that we believe. And so we end up worshiping them to our ruin. You might not have known this, you might have known this. Idolatry, or the worship and love of idol of these objects, of these other gods that aren't real, It's the problem talked about in the Bible. It's the problem in your heart that has to be solved. The number one problem scripture talks about. And there's no solving these fatal attractions that we're going to talk about until we can see them and understand them. That makes sense, right? There's no solving those fatal attractions until we can see them and learn how to escape their grip. Why are we going to talk about this? Two reasons. Because you can't understand yourself if you don't understand the role that idolatry plays in your own heart. And here's why. You will perpetually misdiagnose the source of your stress and your anger, your success and your failure, what motivates you and why you're not motivated, your apathy in school, your apathy spiritually, your anger, your anxiety, your panic, your despair, your boredom, your addictions, your habits, you will perpetually misdiagnose and misidentify all of that until you have a clear understanding of this. And if you misdiagnose all of that, how could you say you understand or know yourself or why you do what you do? But there's a bigger, deeper reason that I've wanted to talk about this this spring You can't and won't understand the true dimensions of the gospel until we understand this. So it's not just that I want you to have a better self-understanding. I want you, I want your heart, I want my heart to truly, genuinely, legitimately come alive 
by the reality of the grace and the mercy of a real and living God. I don't want you to feel like you've got to do a mental gymnastic to get yourself hyped for that. But that when you think of him, you find your spirit sailing into the wind. I want that for you. I think you want that for you. I know God wants that for you. That's why Isaiah, that's why this series. Now, why, real quick, why, or how are we going to go about this? Little by little, there's no other way to do it. If you're going to plow deeply in a field and really get deep to loosen the soil so that nutrients can can get in and little plants can get out and growth can happen, you can't just do it in one deep pass of a plow. You can't like plow two feet deep on the first time. It doesn't work. Too much resistance. So what you do is you go about a foot down, one pass of the plow, and then you pass again another foot down. You pass again another foot down. That's how we get deep. So that's to say that tonight isn't going to answer all the questions. All the light bulbs aren't going to go off tonight. We're not going to illustrate everything, make sense of everything, explain everything. It still might feel pretty abstract. And I want to give you permission for that to be the case. I want you to give God permission to use the next seven weeks prior to spring break to dig deep into you and for us to let go of the demands that he do it all tonight, that he makes sense of everything tonight. This is hard stuff to see clearly. And the last thing I want to ask of you is this, and I know this is kind of a long setup to this, but it's the first night. I want to ask you something specifically, and I think I need to ask it of you and not just assume it. I want to ask that you come back. I want to ask that you come back these next seven weeks. Here's my, my big fear. My big fear is these, these other gods that cannot save and cannot help, but promise you that they can, that they're fine with you being here tonight. First night, lots of energy, new people in the room. No one's got much on their plate this week, but next week, these gods will come calling And they'll say a few more hours of prep for that career fair, a few more hours of prep for that test. It's rainy, it's cold. You're safer here, not around people you don't know that well. You'll be more secure retreating into privacy, not getting in the car and coming back down here. It's inconvenient, there's no parking. There's a lot of obstacles in between you coming back and God being able to dig deeper and deeper and deeper into you. And I just wanted to ask you straight up, and invite you to come back and to listen and to open yourself up to him. If you're gonna do that, you're gonna have to have a plan and maybe a buddy to help because this resistance inside of our hearts is real. I'm gonna read the passage. It's on your page. Look down at it. If you have a pen, mark it up as you want. This is the word of God. It will make you come alive. From the prophet Isaiah in chapter 44, verse 9 through 22. How foolish are those who manufacture idols. These prized, prized objects are really worthless. The people who worship idols don't know this, and so they're all put to shame. Who but a fool would make his own God? An idol that cannot help him one bit. All who worship idols will be disgraced along with these craftsmen, mere humans who claim that they can make a god. They may all stand together, but they will stand in terror and shame. 
The blacksmith stands at his forge to make a sharp tool. He pounds it. He shapes it with all of his might. His work makes him hungry and weak, makes him thirsty and faint. Then the woodcarver measures the block of wood and he draws a pattern on it. He works with chisel and plane and he carves it into a human figure. He gives it human beauty. He puts in it, he puts it in a little shrine. He cuts down cedars. He selects the cypress and the oak and he plants the pine in the forest to be nourished by the rain. And then he uses part of the wood to make a fire and he warms himself and he bakes bread then yes, it's true. He takes the rest of it and he makes himself a god to worship. He makes an idol and he bows down in front of it. He burns part of the tree to roast his meat and to keep himself warm and he says, oh, this fire feels good. Then he takes what's left and he makes his god, a carved idol. And he falls down in front of it, worshiping it and praying to it, saying, rescue me. You're my God. Such stupidity and ignorance. Their eyes are closed. They cannot see. Their minds are shut. They cannot think. The person who made the idol never stops to reflect. Why? It's just a block of wood. I burned half of it for heat and used it to bake my bread and roast my meat. How can the rest of it be a God? Should I bow down to worship a piece of wood? The poor deluded fool feeds on ashes. He trusts something that cannot help him at all. Yet he cannot bring himself to ask, is this idol that I'm holding in my hand a lie? Pay attention, O Jacob, for you are my servant, O Israel. I, the Lord, made you, and I will not forget you. I have swept away your sins like a cloud. I have scattered your offenses and sins like the morning mist. Oh, return to me, for I have paid the price to set you free. Let's pray together real quick. Father, come. Send Holy Spirit now to fill this room. This makes sense when we're talking about people way back in the day who were carving out pieces of wood. That just seems silly to us. Who here does that? But Father, our idols have the same delusional grip on our heart. We probably can't even name them. Rescue us. Show us your heart and help us. Start tonight. Pray in your name. Amen. Everyone worships. Because you were made to worship. God created human beings to worship. Everyone worships. Anybody who's paying attention and is being honest can see that and get it. You don't have to be spiritual. You do not have to be religious to be able to observe humanity and to, to conclude you, the observer, and all the other people are driven by worship. We are worshiping. The prophet Isaiah in verse 9, he's talking about all of us. When he talks about those who manufacture idols, those who kind of just make up gods, fabricate that, who are deluded by it. He's technically talking about the people of God. So you could say like today, he's talking about churchgoers, Christians, we could say. But this same prophet on the next page and the next page and the next page and all the other prophets say that the nations, the irreligious, do the exact same thing. So there's level ground. 
every man, woman, and child, with the exception of Jesus Christ, was born with an idolatrous heart, a worshipful heart. And I said a minute ago that anyone who's paying attention and is honest can see this, even self-avowed atheists. Some of you know the name David Foster Wallace. I hope you read some of his stuff. It's brilliant. He died when he was 46 years old, about 15 years ago. He was a philosopher and a novelist, and he's become really famous in the years since for his writings. Up until his dying day, when he sadly took his life, he was an atheist. He never believed Jesus, never believed the gospel, but he said this at a graduation speech, and I want you to listen so carefully to this. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there's actually no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And he said, an outstanding reason for choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. He gives a few examples. If, for example, you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you'll never feel you have enough. Got to work another weekend. Got to work a few more hours. Got to get another promotion. Got to save and invest a little bit more to buffer myself from the chaos out there, to make my soul safe and prepared. Worship your body, your beauty, your sexual allure, how you look, what you wear, and you'll always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing on your body, you'll die a million deaths before they finally plant you in the grave. Worship power, you'll feel weak and afraid. And you'll need ever more power over others to keep the fear at bay, to keep in control. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart and competent, and you'll end up feeling stupid, always auditioning to get other people's approval, feeling like a fraud, always on the verge of being found out, and so on. Unbelievable insight. He's not making the simple point, the vanilla point that everybody worships. That's observable. He's making a deeper, darker point. He's saying there and in that speech that it's possible that you're worshiping your way right into your own ruin. Thinking a little more money, another, a few less pounds, a little bit of a differently shaped body, a little bit more of a better schedule to kind of get my hands back on the levers of control, a little bit more of that and I'll be safe and I'll be happy, I'll be at equilibrium, I can go about my life. But the very pursuit of those things and the fact that we can't quite ever get there, we're always a mile away from the pot of gold, it ruins us. He said if you worship anything other than God, it's gonna eat you alive. An atheist said if you worship anything other than God, it's gonna eat you alive. The more hope that we put in these things, the more life it takes out of you. The more hope you put in it, the more life it takes out of you. Now, this is why every idol that we daydream about eventually becomes a nightmare. We daydream about it, we think about it, we're preoccupied about it, 
we'll keep talking in the next few weeks how subconscious this is. It's not something we're cognitively aware of. We're not like, I think I'm gonna go worship a bag of potato chips tonight because that's my refuge and my safe place in a busy day. But we keep finding ourselves doing that. Every idol that we daydream about eventually turns into a nightmare. He gave this speech in 2005. Isaiah said the same thing 2,700 years ago. We read it. The Apostle Paul said the same thing 2,000 years ago in a letter to the Romans that he wrote, just a line from that letter in the beginning. He said, here's what has happened when you add a beautiful, worshiping, loving human heart and you introduce the contagion of sin in it. Here's what it does. Sin has made us willing to exchange the glory of the immortal God for stuff, like stuff that God made. Sin made us willing to make that trade-off. The glory of the immortal God for idols resembling men and birds and animals to exchange the truth about God for a lie and to worship and serve and obey the creature rather than the creator. So here's what it's reversed. Here's what sin has done to our hardwired instinct to worship. It's reversed what you and I are most impressed by. It is reversed what you and I are most effortlessly, what most effortlessly catches your attention. You're not thinking about it, you're not working on it, you're not trying to focus on it, you just, it catches your attention, your imagination and your love, you want it. We start pursuing it. So an idol is something that our hearts have become deeply attached to. We develop a spiritual relationship with them, an emotional relationship with them. We'll talk in a couple of weeks how following your dominant emotions, think about your most powerful emotional reactions of anger, of fear, of depression, despair, elation, and exuberance. Follow the breadcrumb trail of your most powerful emotions and you'll find where idolatry's got a grip on your heart because we have a deeply spiritual relationship with these things. We have a deeply emotional relationship. We have a sacrificial relationship with our idols. And again, we don't think our way into it. We feel our way into it. We intuit we worship our way into it. That's why it can be so nebulous or hard to like figure out what's going on in my heart. It's so not obvious to us. Where does Isaiah say these things? Verse 12, um, we sacrifice a ton of effort to get these things, lock it down, secure it. Verse 12, he's giving this kind of a, a, a playful but tragic example of a blacksmith literally making like a physical idol. And he says, with all of his might, he pounds and shapes the metal, the wood carver, the carpenter. He measures, he draws a pattern. He carefully chooses the wood. Then he puts it in a little shrine. How meticulous, how much thought, how much effort we put into cultivating and protecting and pursuing these things that we've become addicted to and fallen in love with. We're emotionally attached to them too. Where do you see that in the passage? Look how much emotion and devotion is pouring out in verse 17. It's comical, kind of to us, because I bet none of y'all like made a physical idol over Christmas break, 
But look at verse 17 and look at the emotion that's just effortlessly leaping from this person's heart. He makes, you know, he, he has his little fire, has his little dinner, and then he's like, look, a little bit of wood's left over. Here's my God. And he falls down in front of it. Either it's comedy hour and he's kind of doing a trope or he thinks it's real. He thinks it's doing something for him. His heart is engaged. Like in passion, whatever worship service you've been at where you just felt like an out-of-body experience, he falls down in front of it and he worships and he praises and he prays to it. It's an emotional attachment. Verse 20, he trusts something. He trusts it. We trust these things. Even though they don't deliver, we will overlook that, but we still trust them. Even though we can't bring ourselves to ask, is this even real? And we're asking deeply spiritual blessings from these other gods who cannot save, these idols. We're asking deeply spiritual blessings from them. We're asking God things from them. Look at what he says in the end of verse 17. Look at the ask. Look at what the heart wants from these things. Whether it's beauty, whether it's money, whether it's control, whether it's approval, whether it's Somebody who matters saying, you matter. And you're like, I'm alive. It's the coolest person in the world. And they saw me. They invited me. I've, I, I'm nirvana. We're asking those things to rescue me. You're my God. Rescue me. Throw me a lifeline. I'm slipping. I'm drowning. I'm sinking. Be the rock under my feet. Push the chaos back. Keep the scary stuff away. So we have a deeply sacrificial relationship with this. We sacrifice a ton of effort in it. We have a deeply emotional relationship with this. It's attached to your deepest emotions. We have a deeply spiritual relationship. We're asking God things of these things. But we also make excuses for their failures and the chaos that they bring into our lives. Look at verse 12. Look at the effects, the, the symptoms of idolatry. His work, so the blacksmith is pounding this out. He's given all this attention to kind of cultivating and protecting this thing that's going to bless him. But his work is making him hungrier and hungrier and hungrier and weaker and weaker and weaker. The chase, the pursuit to lock it down and to get it, it's making him thirstier and thirstier and more and more faint. Verse 9 and verse 10, it's making him ashamed and embarrassed and disgraced when it keeps letting him down and not working. And he says, well, maybe I'm doing it wrong. Maybe I'm not studying enough, working enough. Maybe if I just do a little bit more, I thought I was already doing a ton, but what if I do a little bit more? Maybe that's the problem and I need a little bit more of a hit, of a fix. And then it'll finally work. But you're always falling short, always embarrassed, always ashamed, always looking back. You're like, man, I got a track record of failure here. I want to tell you a story about me, and then I want to tell you kind of an example and an analogy to begin to try to bring this home to you into real life. Because like I said, one of the challenges of these next seven weeks is this stuff can, it can make conceptual sense to you. Like, okay, I get it. 
But it can be very hard to see this happening in your own life, to, to go back between now and bedtime and be like, where did I see idolatry motivating me, driving me? Why did I, why did I tell that joke? What made me want to say that joke? What made me want to say that comment about that girl? What made me want to rush for the door afterwards or stick around for a long time? Here's a story. I've been a campus minister for 11 years now in RUF. I'm going to change the names here. Some of these guys are my friends. Uh, There's a guy, I'll call him Adam, and pretty soon after I got into uh, RUF, um, I really, I got some time in meetings with this guy. I really looked up to him. Still do. Great guy. Super cool. Great personality. He had a little following that, you know, a little like entourage that followed him around everywhere at training and conferences that we were at. Great style. You know, he wears something one year and like the next training, everyone else shows up with those shoes. He was a kingmaker. If he knew you and you got asked to go out to dinner with him, you were made. Or at least it felt, at least I thought that, at least it felt like that to me. And um, so I'm under the illusion that this guy really matters to me. And I don't even know why. I didn't even know him that well, but he mattered to me. He was up there. And you know what I began to live for? And I had no conscious realization of this at all. All deep down, wasn't aware of any of this, only in hindsight. But you know what became a driving motivation whenever I was at training? Get this guy who matters to tell me I matter. You know how I tried to do that? You do it too. You're around certain people that matter and you want them to make you matter. And you're not yourself. You're like, why did I, tell, why did I say that joke? Why did I share that comment? I don't even think that. I don't even believe that. Why am I acting this way? Some of your friends are like, dude, what's up with you? Like, what are you doing? So I would do that, and I wouldn't get anything. It was like I was invisible to him. Couldn't measure up. And it made me resent him more and more. Now, look, I don't know what reality is. I still to this day have no idea if he even knew my name, or who I was, or had any thoughts about me. It's not like, it doesn't have to be like he was trying to cut me out and keep me down low. Probably not. But I had this whole narrative going on in my heart, and it made training, which I go to two weeks out of every year, miserable for years. My heart, my emotions, had become attached to being respected by somebody I respected, seen by someone that I saw, told that I mattered by someone who I thought mattered. Oh, if I could just get blessed by him and get his approval, get his attention, get an invite. It'd all be great. But that never happened. There was a very memorable day. Not proud of this. Uh, it was a couple of years. I'm 42. It was when I was 40. Grown man. I'm with one of my best friends. I'll call him Jeff. We're on the elevator. We're on about the 10th floor. We're going down to the lobby for one of the training sessions. Elevator stops on floor six. Doors open. Boom, there's Adam. I was like, oh, okay, cool. And I had like wrestled with my heart enough of the years to be like, okay, I'm not, I'm not gonna try to get his approval or attention anymore or just whatever, that's like, that's idolatrous, I don't wanna do that. So just sat there, we made eye contact. He looks at me and looks away to my friend Jeff and he goes, Jeff, Jeff, dude, I've missed you so much. Where have you been? And they begin to small talk from floor six down to the lobby and they get off the elevator before I do and they walk into the lobby making their dinner plans, and I go off alone. Here's the embarrassing part, but it's real. 
later that night, I would not get back to the hotel in my little rental car before I sat in the rental car and cried as a 40-year-old man because he didn't look at me. And I'd been trying for 10 years to matter. And I wrestled with Jesus that night in my car. And it was out loud. It was that kind of ugly situation. Where you're like, you saw me in the car, you're like, what's happening to Ben over there? <laughs> and I am wrestling in my heart with Jesus. How did somebody I'm not even friends with get a hold of my heart like this? Why do I care so much? You see the insanity and the absurdity of it? Is it not so weird anymore to think that it's absurd and insane to worship a piece of wood or somebody else is giving you attention or someone else picking you or preferring you or someone else thinking you're drop-dead gorgeous, prettier than any other girl, more handsome or more cut than any other guy? Do you see how absurd that sounds now? Like, how did my heart, my emotions, my soul get attached to that? How am I asking God asks of an invite to dinner? How am I thinking that's gonna save me, rescue me from invisibility, rescue me from not mattering? How did this happen? And I said, Jesus, when are you gonna be enough? When when are the elevators gonna open and I see your eyes look at me and I see the smile come to your face and you prefer me and you love me, you see me? But you know what? That didn't have much hold on my emotions. It didn't bring me that much comfort that night because I was all bent out of shape about this. You had those moments? I know I'm a daughter of, of, of God. I know I'm a son of God. I know I, should have a, I know I should be satisfied with the love of God, but I'm not. I want her love. I want his love. I want my mom's love. Do you know what I'm talking about? It's the absurdity, the insanity of idolatry. How does this happen? Well, here's that, that, that more conceptual example of how this happens. Here's what sin has done inside of our hearts. Imagine, for example, that you're married and this idolatrous impulse comes into your heart and now you're attracted to every other woman other than your wife or every other man other than your husband. You're still married to her, married to him, but you don't ever notice him anymore. You walk into a room and everybody else, you're like, whoa. You're daydreaming about them. The thought of loving your wife, loving your husband who you're married to is a big old drag. It's really hard to get fired up about that. But the thought of loving one of the others, it's a delight. You don't have to work at that at all. It just happens. You fantasize about it. You daydream about it. You want it. Attracted to everybody but your spouse. Wanting her, wanting him feels like work. Wanting them is effortless, subconscious, and automatic. That's idolatry. You were made by a God for a God, to love a God and to be loved by that God. You're married to this God. And idolatry has come into our hearts. Sin has messed up that worship function in our hearts and now we're attracted and impressed by and want everybody but him. It can be so hard so often for everybody to get fired up about God. It's so effortless to get fired up about almost anything else. God sent us prophets to not tap us on the shoulders. That's a priest. A prophet grabs the mic and bangs his hand on it and says, wake up. What are you doing? 
God sent prophets to help you and I realize that that example, that's what's happening in our hearts for everybody in the room and everybody listening. There's no exceptions to this. Are you less surprised why God equates idolatry with adultery in the Bible? I dare you to read Ezekiel 16 before next week. I dare you. To see how this stuff affects the heart of God. Who remembers that he's married to you. Idolatry is adultery. We've fallen in love with other gods that cannot save, that cannot help. We're the willing victims of a lifetime of unrequited, unreturned love. We're head over heels with gods that ghost us. I don't know what they are for you, but you're head over heels for gods that ghost you. We have fallen hard for things that couldn't care less about us because they don't exist. They don't care about anything. They don't care. They don't feel. They're dead. They're nothing. We supply all the relationship. You ever been in one of those? You're getting nothing from the other person. You're given, 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 given. That's idolatry. It's why it makes us so tired. He grows hungrier and hungrier, fainter and fainter, thirstier and thirstier, weaker and weaker. How do we fall for this? Doesn't this seem obvious? Don't you're like, aren't you thinking like, man, I want to avoid that? Like, okay, 2024, I'm not going to do all this stuff Ben's talking about. No more of that for me. I'm going to have a pivot here. Oh, if it were just that easy. Later in his speech, uh, David Foster Wallace added this little line. He says, the insidious or the terrible thing about these idols is that they're unconscious. They're the kind of worship you just gradually slip into day after day without fully being aware of what you're doing. We grow addicted without ever realizing we're becoming addicted. We grow dependent without ever realizing, I need this. I used to just want it and prefer it. Now I have to have it. Isaiah says this too, verse 18 and 20. Just glance down and I'll let you read that and skim it on your own. But look at how he talks about how deluded idolatry makes us. It shuts down our spiritual nervous system. He says our eyes are closed. We cannot see. Our minds are shut. We cannot think. We never even stop to reflect on what? This is just a block of wood. We can't even bring ourselves to ask, is this even delivering what it's promising? Am I actually more peaceful more secure, truly more comfortable. So what keeps us so confused about these things and keeps everything in the realm of smoke and mirrors is a delusion. Paul says in Ephesians 6, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, authorities, and the powers of this dark world and the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. That is why this is so hard to see in your heart. Satanic powers of evil. And that might be a really big pill for you to swallow and to hear. We're in a therapeutic moment in our culture. Everything's just brain science, just chemistry. You're just a body. Everything has a fix. God does not agree with that. I'm not saying that our bodies don't contribute. I'm not saying that those things are not real but it is reductionistic to think that all of our problems can be solved with medicine or talking it out. Paul says this. There's a reason this is so slippery and hard to figure out. 
so easy to fall back into, so easy to fall into addiction. We are addicts, and that's an important thing for us to see and own. That every one of us, I've already told you my story of addiction, I've got dozens of others. And there's hundreds more I can't even see yet. But we're addicts. Which means that the one God who is real and true is a father of addicts. It's the only family he has is one broken by addiction. The only sons he has are addicts. The only daughters he has are addicts. David Sheff is the father of an addict too. He was the father of Nick. He loves Nick. Nick was his beautiful little boy. In his high school years, Nick started to spiral into addiction all the way into meth. David is a journalist, David writes. So he wrote a book, New York Times number one bestseller. It's now a movie, it's called Beautiful Boy, A Father's Journey Through His Son's Addiction. And he writes, fortunately, I have a son, my beautiful boy. Unfortunately, he's a drug addict. Fortunately, he's in recovery. Unfortunately, he relapses. Fortunately, he's in recovery again. Unfortunately, he relapses. Fortunately, he's not dead. If you want a summary of the Old Testament, that's it. Except I would add a line to the end of that poem of God saying to his beautiful boy, his beautiful girl, you're mine. I'll never forget you. That's what he says down in verse 21 and 22. We are unfortunately addicts and idolaters. Fortunately, some of us are in recovery. You have met Jesus. He has broken this satanic, delusional bond. You're free from enslavement to idols and addictions, but not from the habits. And now you're in recovery, fortunately, but unfortunately, we keep relapsing. Some of us are still enslaved, still blindly expending our lives and hopes on things that are not God and cannot help and cannot save and cannot rescue. And fortunately, here is your maker still pleading with you even tonight, still begging you even tonight to pay attention and to hear him talk to you. So I said earlier, we worship our way into ruin And the only way out of ruin and worshiping our way into ruin is to worship your way into revival. How do we worship our way into revival? Worship is the result of seeing God as he really is. That's what worship is. True, life-giving, restoring, reviving, resurrecting worship that doesn't diminish you and kill you but makes you alive, it's when you see a glimpse of of the heart of God. And we get such a magnificent glimpse of the Father's heart for his addicted sons and daughters in the last two verses of this passage, which are the ones I hope you hold on to the tightest. 
In verse 21, God calls Israel by an interesting name. It's not Israel's nickname. Israel is a nickname. Israel means in Hebrew, wrestles with God. When you read the Old Testament, you know why God gave Israel that nickname. But God doesn't say, oh Israel, pay attention, oh Israel, for you're my servant. God uses the original name of who he calls in scripture his little boy, Jacob. God forbid my nine-year-old Elijah ever spirals into addiction, but we call Elijah Eli. We call him Bubba because he's the big brother of everybody. This would be as if I go to some town where Eli was living homeless, just in the squalor of his addiction, he had destroyed his life. And I found my son and I held him. And I didn't call him Bubba, I didn't call him Eli. I said, Elijah, you're mine. I haven't forgotten you. I have paid the price for your freedom. I don't know what your full name is. Joshua, Timothy, Lauren, Mitchell. Your maker calls you that name that he first called you. And he says, I haven't forgotten you. And I'm still asking you to pay attention to me and to see me come for you, to set your heart right and to set your heart free. I have paid the price for your liberation to walk away from this idolatry, to walk away from this ruin, to walk away from this addiction, and to be revived and to be refreshed. That is his promise and that is his offer. His words, not mine. We'll pick up next week. Let's pray. Lord Jesus. This is true. Let these be received in the ears and hearts of my friends, not as the word of Ben, but as the word of God, because that is what it is. Everything we said tonight came from your mouth and from the book of Isaiah. So Holy Spirit, push it deep into our hearts. Turn the light bulbs on. Show us a glimpse of your heart that we might worship our way out of our false worship that has hurt us so badly and other people in you. I pray this for your name and for your sake.